I'd like to do that. Lord, visit our place, this place we've carved into our heart, Lord, for you. Visit that right now and fill it, God. Fill it, Lord, with hope and with your plan and your highest and your best for us. We know, Lord, that we get our minds and our hearts focused on all kinds of cares and concerns, and um, many of them, you look at them and go, that's really a waste of your time. I see tomorrow, and it's fine. It's just going to be fine, Terry. Um, settle down. I know sometimes that's, that's so obvious to you, but to us, Lord, we wander. And um, so visit us, Lord, with peace and with hope and with life and with faith and, Lord, with healing for those who need healing, with provision for those who need provision, with re- restoration for those whose relationships have gone upside down. Lord, meet us where we are today. We know you love us, and we, we just hold those ex- expectations before you in the precious name of Jesus. Amen? Amen? Amen. The other thing, too, I just I love having our kids give us memory verses, not just because it's great to watch them do that, but if you, if, if you, if you dare to look below the surface, you see things like two girls who combined had the courage to stand up and um, share a scripture, and it's really good for us to be in life with people who will partner with us in our faith. That's a great lesson. And another one was Juniper was so afraid. And her scripture was, God doesn't give us a spirit of fear. And she was surrounded by the arms of a loving, protecting father. What's better than that? I feel like I've been to church just watching that. So, um, you know, I I hope you take time to capture what's below the surface of those things because the Holy Spirit's weaving some wonderful things. Good morning. Good morning. I'm going to apologize right now for breaking rules that my mother taught me when I was a little boy. You're not supposed to talk to people publicly with stuff in your mouth. I don't have gum, but you can expect me to pull these things out. I'm, I'm fighting a chest cold. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah I feed off of that. So like, um, anyway, so I apologize in advance, but it's going to either be that or I'm going to make a fool of myself in this you know, coughing thing that's going on. Um, and I want to thank the um, I want to thank, thank thank Steve and the worship team for adding that song um, because it's it's meaningful to me. But let's hop in today's proverb. Today's the third, which always gives me the opportunity to pick one of my absolute favorite proverbs, um, verses five and six. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. Um, some scriptures say He will make your paths straight. The point there is that the Lord will help guide you where your feet should go. And um, so today we're going to be in the book of Hosea, if you brought your Bible. Um, <clears throat> it's, um, and and the, the title for today's message is, I Need Reviving. And um, I need it. I, 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 just, I need reviving in my life. And uh, let me give you a quick background on the book of Hosea. It's, it's probably the largest and most theologically complete of the minor prophets. Um, they're called the minor prophets not because they're less important um, but just because they're smaller, they're shorter letters in in the uh, in the in the in the Bible. Um, the 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 prophetic books of the Bible: Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Lamentations, which was also written by uh, you know those are those are pretty major writings. Um, but there are eleven so-called minor prophets, and they're only minor because they just don't take up as much space. They're just shorter. Um, because Hosea is is both, I think, the largest and most theologically complete of the minor prophets. And there's a theme here, and it talks about God's love even when, even when we wander away from him. 
Israel, at the time this is written, Israel is divided as a nation under God's judgment. And Hosea is this prophet in the northern kingdom. And um, the people there on the northern kingdom, were, 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 they were very prosperous, but they were also wayward. They were, they were idolatrous. They were very, very self-indulgent. In fact, they served an idol of self-indulgence. It was all about me, me, me. How can I make this for me, me, me? And, um, you know, it kind of sounds a little bit like our culture today. And not even just our culture, but even, even church culture to a degree has become more and more self-indulgent over the years. So anyway, after this lengthy proclamation about the consequences of falling away from the Lord, God brings this case. Um, that he shows them um, um, in a very graphic and accurate picture um, their true state. And um, amazingly, God commands this prophet named Hosea to marry a prostitute. You go marry this prostitute. And um, so he does, and she continues to be unfaithful to him, and, 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 and Hosea continues to pursue her um, and to love her in spite of her unfaithfulness. And, and God commanded him to do that, I believe, to create this graphic and very loving picture of God's heart for you and for me. Because we are that unfaithful partner. And uh, we are the ones so prone to give our love and to give our hearts and to give our life to, to lesser things. While God, the God of the universe, who, who demonstrated his love for us in this, that he gave his son Christ, um, he died for us. And, 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 and God was longing to be the first, the, 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 the most, the everything to us. But we continually to go. And the word that scripture uses to describe what we do, it, it says we, we whore ourselves with the lesser, you know, lesser satisfying, lesser promising things, lesser delivering things. And, um, and you, when you think about the savagery that... Um, the ravaging that happens in a relationship that when there's marital um, infidelity, it, we, we think about that and we anticipate that, it, that if it can ever be fixed, it's going to take a long time. And this prophetic book superimposes that experiences and that understanding and puts it upon, it transfers, it says, this is us with God in our relationship with God. So far from being insulted and standing like this as God could, you know, with his arms folded, and he's, he's longing for us. God is longing for us, and he's looking past our kind of somewhat stubborn rebellion sometimes, and he's desiring this reviving. Okay, so listen to these words, and this, this is our passage in Hosea chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will, he will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. So let's just start right here. Why do I need reviving? Why do I need reviving? And the answer is real simple. I need reviving because I'm a wanderer. I'm a wanderer. There was this guy... Robert, um, Robert uh, Robinson, he, he lived in the 1700s in England. He was just a small boy when his father died. I guess this is what he looked like. Probably not when his father died. Um, that was probably later in life, but um, okay, that was a really lame joke. 
at least give me a courtesy daughter laugh. <laughs> Dad, that was great. Okay, thank you. So, so his father died as a very young boy, and his, the, the culture then, he necessarily had to go to work. He, um, with no father, he, he, um, he, he had to go to work as a child, and uh, without a fatherly influence in his life, he fell in with a bad crowd, and he joined a gang. One day, he and his gang um, decided that they were going to go as a group, and they were going to harass this preacher um, named George Whitfield, who um, is a notable Methodist preacher of the day and still notable today. And um, that day, the, uh, George Whitfield was preaching in this uh, meeting from Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, and that's a passage where John the Baptist is talking, and John the Baptist basically makes this comment. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to prepare for the judgment that's coming? Okay, that's pretty strong words. You brood of vipers, it's like John the Baptist is talking. Meanwhile, um, our character uh, is attending as a, you know, troublemaker, and he hears those words, and the Holy Spirit just kind of just gently drills those down into his soul. And um, <laughs> that word just simmers in his soul. And um, over a, a period of a few years, the Holy Spirit's work takes root. And eventually, he decides he's going to give his life to serving God. He becomes this Methodist preacher himself. And at age 22, in 1757, he writes, he's writing poems. And one of the poems he writes, you just sang or just heard sung at age 22. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And, you know, it's interesting. It's an old hymn. We don't do a lot of hymns here because, you know, they're hard to sing sometimes and the words are, you know, it's a little bit of work to do hymns. I think they're really good to do and I know occasionally, occasionally you do them and you don't realize it because we're so well led. It's kind of like the dentist who says, you know, he, gets, he wants to numb you up and you don't realize it. He's got this needle that's this, anyway, so, um, but he gets it in there and, and, and somehow our worship leader somehow gets us singing hymns sometimes. Well, this particular old hymn is actually being revived a little bit itself right now. In fact, several very popular contemporary Christian artists I was just looking at this morning Who's, who's doing this song? Mercy Me, Chris Tomlin, David Crowder, Chris Rice, Hillary Scott, the one that I had on my, on my was Hillary Scott, in case you want to hear it again. Terrific rendition. Anyway, um, <clears throat> this, this old song is being kept alive by the Spirit because of the message is so, so in alignment with God's heart and with Scripture. And so anyway, so he pens this thing at age 22 as his poem. Sadly, later in his life, it kind of became a self-fulfilling prophecy because he wandered. He wandered. He wandered away from the Lord. He wandered away from his family. He wandered away from everything he believed in, everything he knew, and he found himself miserable and alone. And uh, the story has it that one day he was riding in a carriage. I guess we would call it a stagecoach. Um, and <clears throat> there was a woman, a passenger, one of the other passengers there, she was... Um, humming and singing and um, reading poetry. And he was so distraught, and he turns to her and says, hey, would you, would you read some of those to me? And so she did, and after a period of time, she came upon those words. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And, and you know, she, she's reading this poem to this guy that's seated next to her in this carriage, and he realizes, those are my words. What I 
pledged to be true. What I said I would never do, I'm doing it. In fact, I've done it. I've wandered. And now in this stagecoach, God was somehow, this is no coincidence. I don't believe in those kinds of coincidences. Somehow the Lord is moving towards him and he's saying to him, come, come. Bringing his own words back in front of him saying, you know, you've done it. You've, you, you've left your love. Come on. How remarkable, remarkable that this, this, this simple invitation goes out. Come, let us return to the Lord. Come. Verse 1. What could be better than that? And you notice that the scripture is real simple. There's, 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 notice the absence of any condition. There's, there's no pre-qualification. This is just this universal calling out for returning. The Hebrew word for return here, shub, shub, um, basically means turn back. We would maybe translate it as repentance or um, changing of our mind. Somehow I, I, I find myself in life over here, and as I look around and I realize the things that have begun to be true in my life, things I didn't cautiously plan, I didn't, I didn't intend, and somehow I've slipped away. And, and there's this returning that's going on here. And returning quickly involves three things, three things in returning. Number one, that it involves recognizing, you know, recognizing, I, I don't want to be here. And, and, and then the second thing is it involves repenting. You know, I don't like this. I loathe it. I, I, it doesn't rouse me. It repulses me. I don't want this. I, I want freedom from this. So after recognizing, you know, I don't want, I, I don't want to treat people this way. I, I don't want to act like this. I, I don't want to look at that. I don't want to say these things. I don't, I don't want to do these things. That's not what I want for my life. That's not what I want for my, to give to my family. That's not what I want to be about. And I'm recognizing that I'm returning, and I'm turning from it. And then number three, I'm returning 1,000 times at least in the Old Testament. Return. It's in there a lot of times. Return, return, return. You know, if, 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 you know, if you've never... It, it, this, this scripture, by the way, this passage that we're in today is, is really... It, it's, it's not an evangelistic message today. This is really talking to people who already know and walk with the Lord. If you've never met the Lord, if you don't know what I'm talking about, scripture says, all who call on the name of Christ will be saved. I encourage you to listen to the Spirit as He's saying that to you and respond. Eternity lands in that balance. But this message is more talking about people who have already made that decision, but they somehow recognize that there's been some deterioration maybe in my priorities, and they want to return. They want to return to those things. How It's a thousand times that the Holy Spirit, at least in the Old Testament, and in Hosea, that's basically the message of the whole book. Return. 23 times in Hosea alone, we're, we're, we're called back. We're called back. So I'll just give you a couple examples. If you go back just a chapter to chapter 5, verse 4, it says, their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. That's an interesting statement. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. This Hebrew word, know, yada, it means intimate knowing, okay? It doesn't mean know about, like, oh, I've heard of God. It means intimate knowing. This is the exact same word that you find in Genesis 4, where it says, and Adam knew his wife Eve, and she bore him a son. That's the same word, no. Now, don't go weird on me, okay? 
that this is not, this is, this is God saying there is something of intimacy in knowing me. And they have not, God is talking about people who are no longer intimate with him. It's a big deal to God. And even sometimes, you know, you know, we, we can recognize, I, I recognize I'm, maybe I'm getting a little more selfish or more sensual or I'm unforgiving or stubborn or, you know, stiff-necked. And we see it. But this passage is talking about that we, we see those things, but we get so attached to the momentary comforts that we're just not going to confess and forsake it and return to the Lord. We're just not going to do it. And the enemy of our souls has a lot invested in that thinking. And he doesn't relinquish control easily. So there's this battle going on. And you feel it, and I feel it. And it's, we feel it acutely today. So this theme's all over the book. Um, here's a couple other examples. You go forward to chapter 7, verse 10. It says, The pride of Israel, that's God's people, testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. And, you know, I just want to say this isn't a message for the church down the street that maybe you stand in somewhat in judgment of or your sister in Tanina who goes to a different church and you feel like she gets a lesser experience with God or, um, you know, this is for us today. This is for every believer. Um, Hosea 11, verse 5, they shall not return to the land of Egypt, which in the Old Testament, the land of Egypt is always a picture of a life of sin. And God's going to deal with it, but he's going to ju- deal with the judgment differently. Uh, they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. Why, God? Why would you let a king, an evil king, come in and take over for your people? Because they have refused, refused to return to me. Now, before we lose all hope, let me just jump forward to the end of the book and just kind of bring this back into balance. Hosea 14.4, this is not the part of the message, but I want to bring some balance to the feeling of all that. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger has turned from them. May it be so, Lord. May that be so. The word revival is not actually in the Bible. You won't find the word revival in the Bible. It's kind of a, a, a term that the contemporary Christian church, contemporary over, over some period of time, have kind of coined, and it's maybe a descriptor for when large wholesale groups of people um, all at once return to the Lord. Um, what is in Scripture is the word revived. Revived. Psalm 85, 6, Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? So, um, you know, as we talked about before, we control the conditions for the reviving, that we, re- we recognize, we repent, and we return. But God is the one who does the reviving. Do you catch that there? And we need God to do that. Because we can become a little lethargic. We can get a little bit selfish. And we can then start to experience a little bit of spiritual decline. So we need regular occurrences of reviving. If you go back, I would say probably r- roughly 50 years or so in North America... It was pretty common for churches to have what they called revival meetings. Um, there are still some that do. You don't see it too often anymore. It was really common the further you go back. In this, and, and, and when they had revival meetings, the regular preacher would stand down <coughs> and they would bring in a, you know, a, a different preacher out of the bullpen. And um, 
that, that preacher would, you know, this itinerant preacher would travel around and do these revival meetings. And, and basically it was, okay, during this, it's not just Sunday. We're going to meet every day at noon. We're going to, you know, we're going to come back to church on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. And, and, and the message was really pretty simple um, that these preachers would preach. It was like, repent. What are you doing over there? Get back over here. That was basically the message. You know, save, there's a whole week of revival meetings right there in one sentence for you. Anyway, so that was pretty much what happened. And God's people would, you know, listening to what the Spirit was saying, they'd be going, I, I don't know what I'm doing over there. I don't want to be over there. Yeah, these things have got me over there. Um, and so um, I didn't really ever want to be there. And it just kind of, you know, they'd go through that. But, but then they would start to deal with the things that got in the way. And, um, and face the things that, that, that cause their hearts maybe to grow a little bit cold, maybe a little bit hard, and God's grace would move on them and, and so forth. So, but for our purposes, um, the word revival, I'm just going to give us this, this definition. Revival is a renewed interest after a period of indifference or decline. So that's when I'm talking about revival with you, that's what I'm talking about, and we need it. Verse 1, come, return to the Lord. Did you notice just now when I read that that I skipped two words, let us? And I did that because, I mean, I, I just want to say it's, it's, it's best, I think best of all is not when you do it. Best of all is not when I do it. It's best of all when we do it. And, and some of the great moves of God in human history are times when God moved like that among crowds of people. I'm going to, you know, I... A little bit of historian here, so I'm going to give you a little quick history of when this has happened. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Um, there are books about this, and you know I can nerd out on this, but I don't want to. And oh, you've probably heard of Azusa Street revival. It began in, it basically began the modern history of Pentecostalism, and happened in California in 1904 on Azusa Street in a little tiny humble church. A guy named William J. Seymour and. Um, you know, it, 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 it spread, including some other revivals lit from that called the Welsh Revival and the Korean Pentecost and the Manchurian Revival. And, you know, and all this began in one this little humble church. Um, there's another one um, called the First Great Awakening. Um, happened in the 1700s, and it really impacted the church. It's still impacting the church today. You just don't realize it. It included people like John Wesley and George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards and and uh, <clears throat> whole denominations were started that are different today than they were then. Um, and it was a very, very surprising and powerful move of God in the northeastern part of the United States. If you take a good spiritual look at the northeastern part of the United States, it doesn't um, look like then what it looks like today. And uh, that, that basically revival, um, it, it was a huge, that, that revival also ignited in many of the Indian territories um, of North America. It made a, just, just a huge impact. And I don't know how much of a student of history you are, but um, the um, French Revolution was savagely difficult on people of faith. And many people say that that particular revival saved North America and much of Europe and England from the French Revolution, the effects of the French Revolution. Diff a good lesson for our culture that our, our culture has forgotten. I don't want to go down that road. That would, okay. A second great revival was um, um, within 100 years of that one, and God poured out his spirit in, in maybe in more, more quiet ways. Now, this, this is hard to believe, these facts. These are facts, but 
uh, the, there was this revival at Yale under the president, Timothy Davis. There was something called the Cambridge Revival, uh, which happened on the frontier of America. The Bridgewater Revival happened in Scotland. And the Amherst, something called the Amherst College Revival. And it spread among colleges all across our country. Imagine that. <laughs> the Spirit of God lighting up campuses. And, and there was a, um, um, a guy named Charles Finney. Some, some, some people call this the greatest revival, not because of what it did for, for the church, but because of the way that it moved across the world. And um, um, that particular revival ignited several cultural and social changes that you would go, oh, oh. Uh, in fact, I'll give you a couple quick list. The abolition of slavery was ignited because of that revival. The end in North America of child labor f- for what was very evil, I think, before. The moving towards equality for women, a very delayed and needed more, more steam put at it before, but that started there. Universal, a push for universal literacy. A change in um, jails, in the prison, um, uh, reformation of prisons. That, that, that revival spread to Hawaii and it went, you know, Mississippi, it went all over. There was another revival, the World War II, called the World War II revival. That one swept up, um, and Billy Graham was one of the factors there, and um, Duncan, Scott, uh, Duncan Campbell in Scotland. The most recent one that I want to get to is called the Baby Boomer, or the Jesus Movement revival. That one started on the West Coast, and in Southern California, and... Um, uh, different people will lay um, a starting point for that, but I, I, I particularly believe that it mostly started in a Southern California church that was being pastored at the time by a guy named Chuck Smith, Calvary Chapel. Now, um, and I could describe that to you. I would just tell you this. I never met Chuck Smith, but he and his ministry had a huge personal impact on me indirectly. Um, um, and I'll tell you that over a cup of coffee sometime if you want to hear about that. But um, almost all of the modern praise and worship music that all of the churches around the world are experiencing today ignited there. Um, There were things going on in that church where people were being baptized in the ocean, at first by the hundreds. Recognize that music? Any of you? Uh, Maranatha music came out. This church at one point had 15 publishing bands at the same time. Maranatha music, and they were pumping out worship songs that spread to churches all over. Hundreds and then thousands of people at different times were just being baptized in the oceans. And you might have called them hippies, I guess. I don't know. Dirty people who, whatever, sat Indian style and sang Kumbaya. I don't know how you define a hippie. Um, (laughs) Anyway, um, they had such a an attraction where the, when the word of God was preached, people would come in. And um, I heard this story, and I trust the story. There were too many people. And they had just, got, just finished remodeling the church. Brand new carpet, brand new pews. And um, the senior leaders got together and said, what are we going to do with all these people? These are brand new pews, and they're making them dirty. Chuck Smith's answer was, we're ripping out the pews. And they ripped out the pews and made room for people. And they had multiple services. You know, if you ask what are the core values of this church, that's one of the... I told you there was an influence on my life. That's one of the reasons that one of our core values is that I want this place to be a place where 
anyone can embrace Jesus. I don't care what they look like. I don't care what they smell like. I, I just, if they're truly wanting to embrace Jesus, they ought to be able to find him here, don't you think? Anyway, a real move of, of God, and um, all these people get saved, and um, this was also going on. The Holy Spirit was doing this at about the same time at churches, mostly up and down the West Coast. And a lot of churches, here was what made, seemed to make the difference. This. Churches that taught this were blowing up. I mean, it, not in a bad way, blow up, right? <laughs> it, it wasn't the churches that were getting involved with programs and all kinds of Those things are fine. Do those kinds of things too. But if the basis of the church was the word of God, that's, those were the ones that were, were igniting. What would happen if every true believer really got low before the Lord. God, God, is there anything in, in the way I want to have it? I got to have it this way, Lord. Is there anything in that? Is there anything of stubbornness or sinfulness or rebellion or refusal or self-sufficiency? You know, whatever it would be. I mean, if everybody decided that at the same time that I'm going to go further and deeper and wider and it's going to be more genuine and, than I've ever been before. Of course, we can't control the decisions of other people. I mean, we can't even control the decisions. We can't control the decisions of the church necessarily. We can't control the decisions of, of our own small group. But what can we control? Right here. Yeah. I can control my own decisions, right? You know, I, I can't, I mean, I, I can be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. I, I can be part of unity, not of the division. I can be, you know, part of verticality instead of this horizontal gravitational pull for what spins around Terry. Why do I need reviving? That's why I need reviving. Hosea 6.1, come, let us return to the Lord. And I want to talk with you about, you know, how I realize what brings me to the place of seeing my need for revival. And God gets right at that right here in the second part of this verse. Let us return to the Lord for he has torn us. Okay, this is the part of the message I don't want to preach. Torn. It's, this, this word is used in the Old Testament, and um, it, it's basically a word to describe what a predator does with its talons. Okay, you get a graphic picture here. Same word to, to describe when um, Joseph's brothers took the coat home to his father, the coat of many colors, and it was covered in blood. And in the statement, you know, surely an animal has torn him. But what's different here is that this is not a bird of prey doing the tearing. This is the God of the universe. This is the creator of your soul who's being spoken about. And he's got this specific purpose that he may heal us through pain to purpose. Through pain to purpose. God has a purpose for my pain. A purpose for my pain. My profound loneliness or my personal bankruptcy or my persistent grief that won't go away or my crisis. And some of us have slept too many nights under this growing dark cloud of our own creation because we won't recognize and repent and return. 
And we think to ourselves, it's not supposed to be like this, God. And then God brings painful things into our life. That does not square with the kumbaya version of Jesus that I prefer. Torn. Do, do you understand? God would rather see you anywhere else other than living apart from him. Do, do you get that he would rather, God would rather see you in a hospital bed than living apart from him. He'd rather see you in personal bankruptcy than living apart with him, from him. He'd rather see you getting bad news from a doctor than living apart from him. He wants you anywhere other than stubbornly refusing to return to him when you know better. And do you hear the message of love here? Read the text again. He has torn us that he may heal us. God's purpose for the pain is the outcome. I thank God that he's willing to see us suffer. <laughs> you know, God's goal is not that we can have a great week. He doesn't mind it. He likes it when we have a great week. We have a great week. That's a good thing. But that's not his goal. It's not his goal to give us a big smile on Thursday. I mean, I mean, his goal is the outcome. And this, his true love gets revealed. This is a point here for parents. Listen up, parents. <laughs> true love is revealed in willingness to allow suffering for consequences in the moment so that behavior is altered so that there could be greater joy down the road. <laughs> okay, so the second illustration in this passage, for he has torn us that he may heal us, he has struck us down that he may bind us up. This Hebrew word translated as struck doesn't mean obliterated. It doesn't mean disintegrated. It doesn't mean the ray gun comes out, hits you, and you dissolve into nothing. That's not what it means. It's actually the same word. Can I just euphemistically say it's the same word you would use to describe how you would tap a horse on the rear if you're trying to communicate with it. <laughs> okay? You get me? You're tracking with me? And in, in fact, I'm going to intentionally now walk out onto some thin ice and and the reason I know that this is thin ice is because I know it's thin ice to tell people how to raise their kids. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you what these words are actually saying in this passage. This, this word, he has struck us down, is the exact same word, exact same word in Proverbs 23, where it says, don't fail to punish, to punish your children. If you spank them, spank is the exact same word. Some translations say strike with a rod. Some say beat with a rod. Now, I just want to say right now, there's a cultural thing here. I don't think the Lord is telling you to beat your child with a stick the way our culture would view that. That is not what Scripture is telling you. But Scripture is telling you to spank your child and to make them hurt on their rump. That's what it's saying, okay? Now, I want to qualify that for you. It says, don't fail to punish. If you spank them, they're not going to die. If you spank them, you will actually save them from hell is the word there. Sheol. You're going to save them. 
And God covers this topic, by the way, not just once, but over and over again. Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. 29, 17. Discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give you delight to your heart. Now, this whole issue of spanking, I don't want this to become about spanking, but here we are. I'm going to spend just a moment on it. And you can spank me later if you want. <laughs> or you can thank me later, either one. Either one. So, I mean, I'm aware that our culture teaches that, well, spanking a child just teaches them violence. I get the reasoning there. I get the ideas of timeouts. I get the idea, you know, I'm a parent. We have raised a generation. We, d we took our turn in the barrel, and we spanked. So, full disclosure here, we spanked our children. Um, we, we listened to the teachings of the day that helped us sort through this, and... Um, um, James Dobson said, you know, um, don't spank them with your hand, use a spoon because your hand needs all these. Okay, so we listened to all those things. But in the end, the issue came down to did we trust that God's word was the most superior information available for raising our children or do we think we know better? That's what it comes down to. There are several places in Scripture, in Judges and Deuteronomy and in the Proverbs, the, the Scripture talks about people do things they do right in their own eyes. We think we know better in this case than God because we just can't bring ourselves to spank our children. For us, this is just what we did. We chose to spank our children only for this, willful defiance. We never spanked our children for being immature. We never spanked them for being children. Children are children. They do what children do. They make noises at the wrong times. They drop things. They break things. The th things fall on the floor. They give the dog the dinner. They, they do the things like that. That's not what you spank a child for. You spank a child when they stick their nose right into your nose and they say, I'm not doing it, Daddy, no matter what you say. We'll see. <laughs> and I had three children, and all three of them required a different recipe for how and when. We never did it in public. We never humiliated them. I hated every single time. I hated it. They did too. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> but there was never a question, question, I don't think, in my children's hearts that we loved them. And all of our kids loved the Lord. And um, I, I, I would say that they walk in righteousness today in some small part because of this because they chose character themselves, and because God loves them and so forth. We wouldn't take the credit for that. But this is what the Lord directed us as parents. And you see what's happening here in this passage. Hosea didn't bring this upon himself. God says, go marry a prostitute and deal with this and um, pursue her over and over and over again. So God is in the background of this message where it says he tore us to heal us is this message of, I love you, and I'm going to pursue you no matter how far you get from me. I have the right to tell you about the torn part, too. That's why God's doing this. He's doing this because he realizes there's a point and a place for us where we will just say to ourselves, I, I think I like this thing better than returning. And there's a point where God will say, okay, willful defiance, Terry. I'm going to have to spank you. And so... Okay, off of the spanking thing. I, I'm, if you want to talk about it more, you can catch, us up, catch up with us later. 
back to Hosea. So sometimes we can get kind of stiff-necked and maybe stubborn and, and, um, and stuck. So sometimes God has to kind of tap us on the tail. Come on. Why are you stuck there? Get going. Okay, so he has struck us down, verse 1, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, and we all, we all think, oh, third day, there's Jesus. Actually, no, this, is, this passage is not about Jesus' resurrection, although I think it hints at it like all prophetic things do. Um, this is about your, your revival. And so after a period of time, the pain endures for a season. And after that, he will raise us up that we may live before him. This scripture connects us to the higher things of God. Let the circumstances of life remind you of the priority of God and the nearness of eternity. We live our lives as though they're just going to go on forever, but circumstances remind us <laughs> that we won't. Today, you know, we see these terrible tragedies a shooting in a school. Innocent people being, you know. What sensible person sees that demonic insanity and not say to themselves, what if that was my family? Those, those people had a, had a regular wake-up. They, they had a regular shower. They had a regular breakfast. They had a regular drop-off at school. And then the world cracked and everything changed forever. A tragedy like that happened in, during the ministry in the time of Christ. There's this little hint about it in Luke chapter 13. It talks about at the Tower of Siloam, it, it collapsed and it, Scripture says that 18 people were crushed to death when this tower fell over. And of course, Jesus' disciples are learning and they're making comments and they make this comment to Jesus, you know, wow, Lord, those people must have really been sinful. And Jesus made this comment. He corrected that. He said, no, 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 that's not it. And then he says, unless you return to God, you'll die too. The point there is, you know, don't go there. The Lord bitterly, bitterly condemns uncharitable human judgment. Just don't go there. So we ask this question, well, okay, why do I personally have to experience this pain? Because after all, shouldn't I be able to see what's going on around me, do a little bit of extrapolation and learn, and then just kind of get the lesson into my soul without the pain? We have to come back to where that's authentically true in our soul. Through pain to purpose, through death to life. So... Well, we wonder, well, what will this be like if I do return? What if I do see my need for reviving? So now finally we get to our, our landing verse where we're, we're going to wrap this up, Hosea 6. I'm going to back up to, to verse 2 to kind of get a run at verse 3. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he'll raise us up that we may live before him. That's the essence of a revived life living before him. Verse 3, let us know. At this point it's kind of Interesting. It's almost as though the writer catches himself. He says, no, let us know. No, no, that's not strong enough. Let us know. Let us press on to know. Let us press on to know the Lord. Knowing the Lord. It's a big, big, big subject in scriptures. It's a big, robust, significant issue. It's a big term called the knowledge of the Lord and increasing in the knowledge of the Lord. It's, it's way more than information. It's it's not like math class where you just learn the formula. It's not like you know, art class where you learn how to draw the flower in the details, etc. 
it's not just about facts, it, but it starts with the facts. Okay, so it's these four things. The knowledge of the Lord is four things. First off, it's facts. Okay, but it's, then it's, it's also, two, the heart, um, heart knowledge. It's heart awareness. It's, it's understanding. It's comprehension of those facts. So, I mean, let's be honest. If, there's a lot of things that I know about the Lord, but those things don't always move me to um, where they should, right? It's like, so it's press on into the Lord, press, press into the significance of how those things, because, you know, so that this is more precious to me. This is more significant to me. This is not something that I just do on Sundays. This is it. This is, <laughs> so facts and understanding. Verse, and then num- number three, experience with God. I actually have a thing with the Lord. The Lord and I have a thing, you know. It's real, it's active, it's personal, and it happens, you know, happens to me mostly when I'm alone with the Lord. We get this thing, and it's, it's, it's the thing in Terry's life. I mean, I love my wife. You're beautiful, by the way. <laughs> I was just thinking that before I reminded you. Anyway, anyway but, but the thing in my life is the Lord. Okay, and then number four, the fourth part of knowledge of the Lord is the blessings of the Lord. You know, it's actually a two-way deal, too. You know, I bless the Lord with my worship and with my service and with my time and with my faith, and in turn, the Lord also, he blesses me with joy and with strength and with this increased sense of his, his presence and, uh, and then his favor upon me, which kind of acts like a shield sometimes. That's what it means when he says, and this is really where we're landing now, where this is a kind of a game-changing verse for me. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord so what can I expect? Okay, number one, it's available. His going out is as sure as the dawn. Check mark. Did the sun come up today, by the way? How many nights do you lay awake wondering, oh God, is the sun going to come up tomorrow morning? I don't know. I mean, I don't know for sure that it came up today because it's lighter outside, but I don't know if I see it. Um, <clears throat> but we don't have to worry about the sun coming up. We don't have to worry, is God going to get up and is he, is he going to go forth in power for the day, so to speak? You know, he's doing it today. He's ready. And um, if you sense something in your life, some wandering maybe, or some, you're wondering about whether he's going to show up in your circumstances, know this, he's ready to provide and to be there for that. As sure as the dawn. As sure as the sun came up, the sun came up. Okay. But there's a battle going on. There's a battle going on. In fact, there's a spiritual go- battle going on in this room right now. There is. I-, I say this for two reasons. I want to make you aware of the fact that you're loved by the Lord, H- how much He desires um, deeper relationship with you again. And the second reason that I mention that is that I remind you how much the enemy of your soul enjoys his encroachments and how unwilling he is to relinquish them. So there's this battle going on right now. But there's this great victory because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, right? And it's as certain as the dawn. So that's his availability. Then notice how he gives. Here comes this abundance. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Rain in scriptures is a picture of God's blessing. It's hard for us to understand because most of us aren't farmers here. 
Um, and if, um, you know, we like our flowers, so if we don't want our posies to die, it's not a big deal because we have a hose hooked up to the side of our house and we just run the hose over there and give it to the flowers, right? If the flowers die, it's not because we didn't have water. It's because we didn't give it the water we already had. Don't you agree? Yeah. Um, but these people, imagine who they were. They were living in the Middle East. And um, <clears throat> picture that. I mean, it's different today than it was even then. But it, it, where it didn't rain when and where you need it. And, um, you know, our problems with rain are, are the opposite. It, it, we have a ruined picnic. We, we have to move the wedding inside. Oh, it's raining. Oh, no. We're going to have to close Safeco roof so that the baseball game can go on. That's our problems with rain. For them, when the rain came, there were two different, because the former rain and the latter rain, this scripture, I need to have a drink. Speaking of water. Thank you. I'm almost done. <coughs> In more ways than one. <coughs> Sorry. This picture of rain was the, the one that, that would come in the big downpour. It's that once a year, you know, it's raining. We're going to have crops again. We're going to make it. We're going to be able to have food for our children again. That's what this is a picture of. So God bringing rain is a blessing. Drought in scriptures is a picture of judgment. And so when God says God comes to us like the abundant downpour of the spring rains, He's talking about saturating the earth. He's talking about, that's how God gives. That's how God wants to give and to bless. So if you find yourself holding back, maybe a bit stubborn, if it's been a while since you've really found joy in your, in your time in God's word, if it's been a while since you've had personal ownership, if it's been a while since you've had you know, real true victory, <coughs> oh, I gotta stop. The answer is he's available. You pray. So God, we just come before you this morning and we long to return to you, Lord. Um, and God, for those of us that have um, spent a little bit of time out of your perfect will. Just ask that you would just speak to us now, Lord, and, and guide us back into your perfect will, Lord, into your heart, Lord, for us. And as we seal this time, this message, Lord, I just um, ask that uh, hearts of stone would be turned instantly right now to hearts of flesh. Um, that, God, we would not resist your overwhelming love hmm. to live at peace, Lord, with our surroundings, God, but with you. In Jesus' name. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet. <clears throat>